Yes, great. Thank you. Is that all right? Perfect. Yes. She told me not to move so much. Okay, welcome everybody to the Yomi Yuan, sponsored by Maharat uh, program in Trisha. And uh, Shivat Maharat is the official ethic and Trisha Institute, and uh, wonderful way to prepare for the uh, Yavin Noraim. Rosh Hashanah is soon upon us. So we have a full day of learning here. Uh, our first teacher will be Judy Kushner, who's 25 days for many years. Is an author of subversive sequels in the Bible. Here it is, available outside, and uh, a lecturer, teacher, important teacher. Very pleased to that Judy could be here with us today. Followed by Rabbi Fox, and I'll be teaching at the end of the day. We also wanted to remind everybody that we have uh, classes at Risha all year. Schedules are here, and many different offerings. I invite everybody to look into it and to attend as many classes as possible to participate here with us in this Beit Midrash. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you very much. How's the, is the mic working? No. I, then how'd you hear me? That was, a trick, that was a trick question. What do I have to do? Is that working? No. Is that working? Yes. Do I have to talk like this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be awkward. What? A little higher. A little higher. Um, running out of holding. Uh, okay. This way. We'll listen louder. <laughs> How's this? Is that better? Yes? Okay. Should Rabbi Silver just leave? I'll be back. Okay, but then I have to talk, really have to talk louder because I wanted to say something nice about him. Can you hear me, Rabbi Silver? Okay. Uh, what, he, what he didn't mention is that I have a great. I, I, I was a student here in this institution a long, long time ago. Uh, and I feel a great deal of gratitude to Rabbi Silver and to Jewish Institute for. Uh, for the basically opening up my eyes to a new way of study. In Israel, it's now very popular to talk about Tanakh Begova Einayim. You've heard this term? Right? Tanakh at eye level, where you have these kind of straight on, unapologetic, uh, honest interpretations of Tukim without bringing in all of the preconceptions and all of the things that we may have, we may have learned about them before. Um, and I have to say that Rabbi Silver was teaching all of those things here at Drisha before. Uh, before any of these things were a glimmer in the eyes of the of the eye level people, um, so I had a great deal of gratitude. And I'm looking forward. I have to say, I am I am developing a tremendous appreciation for Yeshivat Maharat, Rabbi Fox. I had a wonderful opportunity yesterday to learn with the women here, and I think the uh, future of the Jewish people is looking very very good. 
this is a an important, inevitable, and uh, very blessed uh, turn of events, and uh, it's all good for our Jewish future. So, having said that, I'm going to do something that I often swear I will never do, and that is to talk about the Akedah. Uh, and sadly for me as a teacher, uh, the the Akedah always comes at the beginning of the academic year, and people expect me as a Tanakh teacher to teach it. Uh, and I think it's just a terrible way to start off a year, because you start with the most difficult story you can imagine, and say, here's Tanakh, what do you think of it? Uh, and, and it really is, I find that the more I study it, the more I'm convinced. I, 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 there's nothing I can do to really understand it. Um, basically, there have been three general approaches toward a story such as this. Well, two, mainly two. I'm going to offer a third. But when we have a story that, that is so difficult to understand on its own terms, uh, what do we do? What are our options? Did I mention that I'm going to expect you to talk to me too? <laughs> yeah. What do we do? We read a story. Ignore it. OK, that's good. Uh, by the way, that, I, as I have found, that has the opposite effect. Right? When, I was, when I was young and I was being educated by my teachers, and we would get to, for instance, the 38th chapter of Reshit, Yehudan Tavar, and they'd say, no, you don't have to learn that. Go to the next chapter. And every single student went home. <laughs> right? So skipping it doesn't usually work. That's No. What else? Apologize for OK, you apologize for it. How do you apologize? I Okay, you don't have to make up midrashim. There are midrashim galore that do this, right? That 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 spin out an alternative understanding, or they kind of sanitize things as we read, and they help us understand. Now, I I don't mean to mock because there's tremendous value in these midrashim, but it's not the same as asking the question, what is the story actually saying? Right? We might learn from those midrashim all kinds of religious and moral messages. But that's not the same as looking straight on at eye level and trying to understand what the stories actually say. Um, what else? I was going to say psychoanalyze it. Look okay. at it within its historical context. Good. So, uh, and I, I want to just tweak what the two of you both said. You're talking about a more traditional approach um, that is bringing in Midrashim, love you, uh, bringing in Midrashim. And I might add to that, um, good, solid literary readings of the text. Also, interpretation, looking at every word and seeing, well, if we really understand this word and phrase, we might be able to come up with some deeper understanding that makes a little more sense to us. Um, I think Woody Allen said it best when he, in one line in one of his movies, he said, exegesis saves. <laughs> okay? If you find the right, if you find the right parsha note, the right exegesis, you're, you're okay. And that, that's one way to go. The other way to go is saying, no, we can't interpret it out of existence. It's there. So what do we do? We take a more critical approach to it. We look at the context. They have the sociological context, the historical context. Um, what else? The psychological, right? All those things. We bring in all of our knowledge and understanding from all other fields. And we say, we can understand this story um, contextually, in some other context, but not necessarily in the Biblical. Well, you have a harder time with the biblical. What's the problem with that? I don't want to say. What's the What's the problem with that? I want to say there's a great value in that, and we should always bring everything that we have to interpretation. But what's What's the problem with doing only that? Yes. Okay. We might want to ask. We might ask ourselves. That's very nice. And now we we might understand this in the context of the ancient Near East. But 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 this is in our our foundational holy book. 
what what are the what are the moral and religious messages that we walk away with other than the fact that actually you know child sacrifice is a bad thing? That, you know, it, so that, that's the problem. It kind of I mean I know I, in the whenever I try to look at something this way, I find that it's a very can be a very very important tool. But if you use it exclusively, often you're left kind of cold. You know that that can't be all there is to it. So there are problems with all of these approaches, and again, trust me, I've tried. What, what, I, what I came up with after many, many years of, of, of grappling with this and struggling with this is, is a new way of looking at it, and that, this is what led to this, this book that, that, I, that it was just flashed in front of your eyes um, called Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other. Um, and what all that means, by the way, I have to admit, my, my son, when he was 17 years old at the time, and I, I was so proud of this, I finally finished this book after six years, and he said, What's it, what are you calling it? And I said, I'm calling it Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other. He looked at me with pain on his face, and he said, Eva, nobody is going to buy a book with that name. You have to call it Monkeys in Space. <laughs> and, and that was it. He wouldn't even hear of any other thing. I thought, look, he was probably right, but I, I stuck with it. And, let me try to explain what it is. Monkeys in Space would have been self-explanatory. This is not. Um, subversive sequels in the Bible. What I'm talking about is, is a vibrant conversation, uh, nothing less, that is going on between the passages in the Bible. There's a, there's a, a kind of cacophony of, of, of dialogue that's going on. Stories are interacting all the time, playing off of one another. And what, what would be our, our tip-off as good, close readers that stories are doing this? How do we identify this story is talking to that story? Language. Okay. Language. Shared language. Themes. Themes. Okay? We look at two stories, and this story says, you, you, and, and not just, and some of the women asked yesterday, I don't think I ever got around to answering this. Um, you have to be very careful with this. Trust me, you can go much too far with it. Uh, the great Bible scholar, Yair Zakovich, has, has given a name to this dreaded syndrome known as parallelomania. Uh, it's very easy to fall into it. You have to be careful. And I have students, and they're very sweet, and they want to please me. And sometimes they come running, running up to me, and they say, look, in this story it says, by Yomer, and in that story it says, by Yomer. It's fantastic. Right? Yes, that's really great, but you know, let's, right? the idea is what? How do we know the two stories? It can't just be any any words. What does it, what does it have to be? Okay, words that are outstanding in some way, words that are rare in some way, words that are insistent in both stories, that are going to that are going to beckon us to to draw. Right, they're really calling out to us to draw the stories together. Okay, well, we're not going to talk about today. What I never got around to doing yesterday with the women. Um, one of my favorite examples is the story of Noah and the and the and the book of Yonah. And if I just throw out those two words to you, you can immediately tell me what that what they have in common is water. Boats, rain, what? What? Teshuvah. What else? A Yonah, right? The, the, the title character and the and the dove. What else? How about a forty-day forty-day time period, right? Forty days. What? A, a back and forth. Good. Prophet. It's, in both stories, it seems to be more, more a study of the prophet than of the prophecy. And in fact, they, between the two of them, there's only five words of prophecy that's even, that's even delivered. In, in addition to all those ideas and, and words, there's also certain, certain rare words that are shared between them. Hamas. It's in both stories. Uh, the place Tarshish, Nineveh, 
Um, right? Fascinating. And, and, and we look at this and we say, well, you know, why? Why? What are, what are these arrows doing there? This is really the equivalent of arrows saying, look at us together. And, and what is there to be gained by looking at these as a pair rather than looking or in addition to looking at each story individually? That is what I call the mining stage, where two stories are drawn together on the basis of their language and themes. We pull them together and we see how one story helps reinforce the other, interpret the other, elucidate the other. But the next stage, and this is the one that I find the most intriguing, is what I like to call the undermining or subversive stage. This is, the, this is where it gets dangerous. Where I look at the two stories, they are drawn together on the basis of language and theme, but not just to reinforce and to interpret, but actually one story begins to question the other story, to challenge it, and sometimes to even radically overturn it. And in, this, in the, in the uh, example of Noah and Yonah, I look at the, the Yonah story as actually the undoing of the Noah story. It takes all that, all those words and all those things and says, and, and, and questions the basic assumption of the story, which is, do sinners have to meet, have to meet their death? And the book of Yonah is going to take all those things and say, well, in this case, there's Hamas, but Hamas is not going to seal the people's fate. In this case, the people are going to give up Hamas. What's Hamas? Violence. And they're going to be saved. In this case, a 40-day time period is not going to bring the destruction. The 40-day time period is going to overturn. Those 40 days are not going to be for destruction. They're going to be for salvation. And on and on and on. Words. With the same, the same uh, figures, characters, words are used for, for, the, for the inversion of the original story. And, 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 and ultimately, what we walk away with is instead of a story about sin and inevitable destruction, it's a story about sin and, and possibility. Sin and possibility of second chances, of, of transformation. So it's, it, 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 I, I find it to be an enormously valuable tool in saying stories taken on their own have much to say. So it's, it's almost a warning to us as the readers not to think that, that each story that we read is completely self-contained and that that's the Bible's final word on that subject. If we read the story of the flood alone, we, we might think that this, that, that this book is, is just all about, about un, uh, unending punishment, un, unblinking punishment. But when we get to another story that says, wait a minute, the, the attitude toward this, the biblical attitude, as it were, is so much more complex. And, and, and evolving than that. Um, that. That's the payoff by looking at stories in light of one. Okay, now with all of that as background, I, I, I'm going to utter a small prayer that what we can do here today is to try to shine some light on what I consider to be one of the most inscrutable stories in Tanakh, and that is the story of the Akita. And in fact, what I wanted to do, you all have copies of this handout? Okay, and, and I hope people have access to a Tanakh as well. I was trying to save some trees. You don't have yes. it? Are there extra handouts somewhere? There are some handouts here. There are handouts here yeah. and a couple of Tanakh names. Thank you. Oh, you have to have the handouts. Anybody else need anything? Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask you to just open your Tanakh to the, to the story of the Akedah, also known as the 22nd chapter of the book of Bereshit.
page 39 in the JPS. And I want you to notice that this story begins with the words, Vayihi achar hadivarim ha'ele, meaning? Not a trick question. What? It was after these things, events, right? And, and it's interesting that later on in the same story, we have a reprise of this, this little convention. In verse 20, after the, the great climax of the story where Yitzhak is spared at the last moment, it says, After these things. So in essence, the story begins and ends with these words, kind of bracketing the story. After these things, after these things. Um, and I would like to take these, these brackets as, as a signal to look outside of the story of the Akedah and into two parallel stories, one that comes before and one that comes after, and to see if by looking at the story in relation to others, we can, we can come to some greater understanding of the story itself. The first, um, the Akedah comes on the heels, obviously, of chapter 21. And what's the main story in chapter 21? Hagar, Yishmael, the banishment of Yishmael. Okay, so let's, the first thing we're going to do is have a very brief comparison of these two stories. And in order to do that, just to, to cut down on time, let's, let's take a look at the page in front of us. Source number one, um, I've given you a, a short excerpt from Genesis 17. When Abraham is first informed that Sarah, Sarai, as she's called then, is going to have a child. And she's, keep in mind, she's 90 years old and he's 100. God says, Her name is changed. I blessed her. She's going to have a child. And I'll bless her, etc. What's, what's Abraham's response to this miraculous, this miraculous um, news? Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Abraham Elohim Lu Yishmael What does that mean? Lu Yishmael If only, if only Yishmael would live before you. What kind of a response is this? God says a miracle is about to happen. This very, very ancient wife of yours is going to have a child, and this is the child I've been talking about all this time. And his response is what? So that's the one I have. Okay, what about the one I have? It's basically saying, you don't have to make me such outlandish promises. I'm, I'm okay. I have a child. Right? And we're not going to get into the commentaries here uh, who distinguish between Abraham's laughter and Sarah's laughter. I, I've always been very perplexed by that because this really sounds like there is a certain degree of disbelief here on the part of Abraham, or certainly distancing himself from it. And it who, if, if you hear about a, a new son that's born, you don't talk about the other son that you have and say, just you know, just take care of him. Finally, when the child is born, um, and I hear I would say that there's there's a kind of confusion on the part of Abraham because this this second child actually does come in in source number two. Listen to the, to, the, to the sounds of this language. Sarah bore a child to Abraham, meaning his old age. God had spoken to him. 
Hanolad lo, asher yalida lo, Sarah Yitzchak. What are you hearing? Okay, the pronouns are all masculine singular. It's all about Abraham. Vayamol Abraham et Yitzchak beno, ben Shimonat yamim kasher tziva oto Elohim. The Abraham ben Naatshana vihivale lo et Yitzchak beno. Yitzchak is mentioned over and over again as Beno, 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 his son. All the other pronouns refer to Abraham, and Abraham's name is, is, is mentioned again and again. Now let's look what happens in the next verse. Vayigdal hayelet. The child grew up. Vayigamal, and he was weaned. Vayas Abraham nishtegadol biyom higamel et Yitzchak. We're still in source two, the last line. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Yitzchak was weaned. What happened here in this last verse? How, does this, how is this different than all the verses before it? Say again? Okay, it's about Yitzchak. There's no Beno. All of a sudden, he's just Yitzchak or Hayelet. There's no, there's no, for the very first time, Yitzchak is mentioned not in relation to Abraham, but as a, as a free, freestanding individual. Why do you think that happens right here at the moment that Yitzchak is going to be weak? Say again? He's becoming himself. And what happens when he's becoming himself? He's, he's becoming a person. So what, what does that do if we get inside the mindset of Abraham for a minute? He's viable. He's, he's, he's viable. viable as a successor. Okay, as a successor. Go ahead. Okay, the, the conflict now is, is becoming apparent. If Ishmael, if Abraham's mindset up until now has been, it's, it's Ishmael is my son. And now, for a moment, it seems at the birth, he's swept up into this euphoria of this baby. But as soon as the baby becomes a child, a viable child, all of a sudden, wait a minute, what's, what now what? I have Ishmael, and now I have an actual second child. Not sure which way to go here. Sarah, however, sees things very clearly in, in, in source number three. That's a very long introduction to who Ishmael is. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she bore to Abraham, doing this thing that is called Mitzachek. Um, fascinating. In all throughout chapter 21, Ishmael is never once referred to by name. He is a child who exists only in relation to everybody else. We see him through the prism of every other character in the story. How does Sarah see him, based on this verse? What? The son of an Egyptian maid who happens to have borne this child to Abraham. Right? Not has nothing to do with me, um, and she's that's hers. Mitzachik. Um, Mitzachet, that's a very difficult word. Um, everybody wants to know what this could possibly mean. Mitzachet, what do you think it means? Mitzachet. Okay, keep in mind we're about to come into outright conflict. As a result of this mitzachet, batomel Abraham, garesh ha'ama hazot ve'et bena. Banish this, this maid and her son. Okay? Bena. Up until now, Yitzchak has been Beno, shel Abraham. Now, Sarah says, no, she's not Beno, she, he is Bina, that woman's son. What do you think Mitzachik is that, that, that would have elicited such a, such a dramatic and we might even add cruel response on the part of Sarah? Well, 
מצחק. Making fun. It sounds like it means making fun. Let's say we know that word. Um, and, and, the, and the Midrashim go to town with this, making fun, uh, mocking. What, what would he mock him about according to the Midrashim? Anybody know? Uh, right, that he was that 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 Yitzhak is, is illegitimate. You know, look what happens. You know, your, your mother doesn't have a child for 90 years, so she spends a little time with Abimelech, and now she's now you were born. But whatever, mocking him. Uh, the best interpretation, and, and Rashi brings in Midrashim that say he was in, engaged in nothing less than Avodah, Zarah, Giloy, Arayot, and Shpichut Amin, the big three. Um, the reason that the Midrashim do that, why do they do that? They, they have to justify her reaction, right? If Sarah did this, he must have been doing something terrible. But the best, the best interpretation I've ever seen is this word by a woman named Judith Cates. Has anyone ever read anything by Judith Cates from Boston? He was mitzachek. Isn't that cute? He was making himself into Yitzchak. He was Isaacing. <laughs> um, he was saying basically, right, getting into this competition and saying, it's, it's a, it is a competition. I'm here to, to supplant you. You No, the opposite. You think you're here to supplant me. And yes, it's true that God has been talking about this chosen son who's going to be called Yitzchak. I'm the real Yitzchak, says Yishmael. And if that's true, and that it, it, it actually does pick up on some of the line of many of the Midrashim, that what Sarah feels here is a, is, is a sense of, of direct uh, challenge, threat to her position and to the position of Yitzchak. And as a result, she says, you have to get rid of him. We can't, none of this can work together. We can't coexist. Um, and Abraham's response, here, let's, let's, I, I'm sorry for all the dot, dot, dots here. I was worried about trees. Um, but if you look at it inside, in Kaf Aleph, it's on page 37. Verse 10. Beni for her is, is Yitzchak. Bina is that other one. And now comes what I think is the critical verse in this chapter. Vayera hadavar me'od be'ene Abraham al odot. What happened here? Okay, there's confusion. Whose child is this? He makes a choice. Al odot beno. One of these is my son. Which one is it? Sounds like it's Ishmael. Al odot beno. Who do you feel bad about? No. Okay, we could we could work some gymnastics and say maybe it's talking about Yitzchak, but it seems that the plain sense of this is no. He feels bad about Ishmael. Why? Because he's his son. His first. His first son. What we're talking about here is 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 basic parental feeling. Here comes somebody who says this child is a threat. Get rid of him. And 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 the father is not looking at this in a covenantal manner, which it could be that Sarah is doing. We're not sure what's going on with her. What we do know is that God is going to uphold her. Right? He's going to say in the next verse, Right? 
First of all, God has to tell Abraham, she's right and you're wrong. We are talking about Yitzhak. If you're confused, let me set this let me set the record straight. Yitzhak is the one I've been telling you about. And then he says to him, Aldera. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a, an amazing little piece of text here where, where, where Abraham feels something natural. And God says, Don't feel that. And and the question is, what is this Pasuk doing here? What is Abraham? What kind of a reaction is this? It's a human reaction. And as a result of this, um, God has to intervene and say, this is not what I want. The very next verse, tell me if it sounds familiar or if it sounds like a foreshadow of anything. Vayashkem Abraham baboker, vayikach lechem bechemat mayim, etc. What does that sound like? The Akedah. All of a sudden we're into Akedah mode. Vayashkem, and this list of verbs, and the gerush, the expulsion, sacrificing the son. This story is, I think, a, a pivotal story in, in the entire narrative of Avraham, where the Avraham that we knew before Perek Aleph was a very different Avraham. For instance, right, what's the other grand moment in Avraham's experiences with God? In Sodom, right? And if you look here in source number four, when God says to, to Avraham, I am going to decimate these cities because they're filled with sinners. Abraham has a tremendous amount of sympathy for these people and he wants to he wants to spare them. And he says things like etc. Will the judge of all the earth not do justice? Okay, I, I, it's hard to imagine a, a, a more a more uh, divergent approach uh, than this to what we're going to, what we see here and ultimately what we see at the Akedah. What's the difference? Who, what's, who is Abraham in Sodom and who is Abraham in the Akedah? Or in, in, in the middle of Perikapa? Okay, but a very particular kind of active and passive. What is he saying here? Hashofet kol ha'aretz lo yaseh mishpat. Okay, it's not right. He's using, and it's interesting. He's this is moral argument. He calls himself afar va'efer. I'm dust and ashes, and it seems almost paradoxical. If he's really dust and ashes, how dare he, right, challenge God? But I make perhaps Yeshayahu Leibovitz writes about this very poignantly. He says this is actually a lower level of engagement with God, where Abraham is calling on God to act according to the, as an understandable system of human justice. Basically saying, you don't, don't tell me you're God. I'm holding you to my system of justice. I'm a father, I'm human, I understand what it means to be human, and I demand of you that you follow the rules of humanity. And God, what does God do? That's down. God backs down. They're 50, 40, 30, this whole negotiation, but finally it's a lost cause because, because there aren't even 10. But the fact that Abraham wins the argument, as it were, is, is, is astounding. And then we get to Perikaf Aleph, where God says to, to Abraham, um, I want you to do what your wife said. I want you to get rid of that child. And Abraham allows himself, he in, indulges in, in, a, in a natural human response. Vayera, I feel miserable. And this time, 
God says to him, oh, no, you don't. You're not killing Israel. Oh, yeah, get over it. Everything that your wife said to do, get up and do it. Banish that son. Don't look back. Get into your string of verbs. Wake up early. Get your donkey. Uh, take things. Grab things. Send them out. And, and that's the end of it. And I, what I want to suggest here is that there's, there's a certain progression that's taking place here, where there's Abraham and Sodom, and that's an Abraham that we can identify with, we understand him. Then we get to Abraham at the in Parakaf Aleph, where we understand him, and then we kind of don't. We don't understand God, but we realize that Abraham understands that he's got to move into a new mode of operation. And then this is all the backdrop to the Akedah, where all of a sudden it's all about doing things because God said so. And if you take a look, I think this made it to your little packet. At the back of, of, your, of your sources, I, I made a little chart here. Uh, do you have it? Looks like a chart. Yes? Uh, to line up these two stories, and what I'm going to ask you to do now is to um, take five minutes and talk to the person next to you, looking at this chart, and I, what I've done is to line up certain specific details of Herod Kaf Aleph with the similar details of Herod Kaf Bet. I want to ask you to look at these things and ask yourselves, what is the basic difference? How are these stories similar and how are they different? Kaf Aleph and Kaf Bet. Questions on this? Take five minutes. Let's turn this place into a rocking baby draft. <laughs>
Comparison number one. What did you make of comparison number one? Well, he is going to say, et bincha, et yichidcha, asher ahavta, et yitzchak. That's very specific. That is quite specific. It's intensified. But, but there's something else going on here. What's the reason for the, for the command in each case? What? Something he's done. Right? Yishmael is banished for a reason. Now, we might not like the reason or even understand the reason, but there's a reason. He did something. 
and Sarah reacts to that something, and God supports her. So there's some kind of logic in this story, uh, cause and effect. What do we have in the Akedah? God tests Abraham, and he says, take your child and bring him up as an offering. Right, what we're seeing here in Perak Kavet is, is right, taking the beginnings of, of, the, of that thing that happened in Kavalot and taking it to an entirely new level. With God now, and we're going to see it in the next source as well, um, it's the, the initiative comes from God, the order comes from God, not from Sarah, from God directly. It's not that just God is supporting, but God is initiating. And in addition, um, in, in the second source here, um, what is being demanded is very different. How is it different? Banishment is not the same as death. Although in the story of Ishmael, if we had more time, we would question what in the world is Abraham thinking? Sending these people off into the desert with a little bit of water. I mean, and, and the Mepharshim go crazy with this. But what, I mean, it sounds like he is sending them off to their death, but that's not for now. Yeah? Yes. So you get the sense, okay, you did that. Now let's take it up a notch. Now let's let's finish off the impossible demand. Correct. Okay. Next. Uh, in number three, I, we talked about this. In one case, right, there's a there's a response. And God says, Don't do that. And now in the story of the Akedah, what happens? What's that blank line doing here? Right. No reaction. Why does he have no reaction? We all wonder, but but now if we look at it in this context, maybe he's learned something. Maybe he understands something from what happened back in the previous chapter. God has told me that when I am to sacrifice a child, I am not to feel bad about it, or at least to exhibit bad feelings. Uh, it's possible, but this seems to expect that. Yeah, go ahead. I think now we realize that it was a matarah. When Hashem comes, it was so out of care of the thing. What was the matana? The matarah. The, the matarah. Yeah, the yeah. purpose. Even for having a child at that age. And the matarah was Yitzhak. For this purpose. And so maybe now Abraham really accepts it. Aha. Okay, but now he's got to kill it. Hashem has a plan for me with Yitzhak. Which is but to kill him. Yes, which is the problem. Okay, so it's, it's making things clearer so that it could be much more cruel. Basically, is it clear, or could it be perhaps um, uh, a not seeing, a not understanding yet, and almost mm -hmm. holding in abeyance? Is it everyone's holding his breath? Because otherwise, we can't make any sense of Abraham. Good. Because the Abraham that you've shown us from chapter 18 to chapter 21 is human. Yes. He isn't yet right. the Abraham that you're going to show us on Numbers 5 and 6, where he sees, he sees, he sees, he sees. I'm very glad you picked up on this. This, this guiding word that recurs throughout the story, this, this theme of vision. And notice that the vision is, is evolving. At the beginning, what do we have? Vayar et merachok. Uh, and I, I look at this kind of metaphorically, right? He's seeing his vision is there, but it's very, very distant. And as the story unfolds, all of a sudden we have vision all over the place, where Hashem Yireh, Hashem Yireh, God is seen, God sees, and Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees. All of this vision is going on. But again, we have to ask ourselves, what, what is the meaning of that vision? And how, how did that type of vision 
sit in the hearts and the minds of the people who are trying to understand the story. It's true. Abraham, what the words tell us is that he gets it right. He get finally he gets it right. But but how horrible is this is this right? That that's the question. Yeah. What do you mean the fact that Abraham would react to a blow? It's kind of like prophetic for the generations. Because really, I know you say he gets it right, but Good. this question is not something that we really. I don't know that he got it right. I okay. always question this. Like, if someone told you to take your kid, you would say to them, oh, right. "I'm just saying." Right. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's one of those questions you just can't answer. Okay. And that that's that exactly there is I, that's the, the question that's looming over this whole thing. And, I, and we're not ready for it yet, but I, I don't, let's not forget it. If, if it's even possible to forget it, let's, let's try not to. Yeah. Isn't it really an earlier question? And that is, is that the fact that we need um, anything that happens in the Torah is supposed to be teaching us? Well, what kind of lesson is it that if you have a child that does something bad that you banish them, this is not setting the great risk? Right. That, neither so neither, neither, the neither chapter. Yes. Before we even get anywhere. Yes. And how, meaning, meaning how can God, I mean, Right. I love an answer to that. Right. Well, I hope you're not asking me that question. Yeah. <laughs> okay, please go. Okay. It seems to me that Abraham is acting very differently here than he's acted in the, in the other two examples. In there, he saw the world, physical world, and he saw God. And he, and he, he was able to integrate them. But here, mm. it's like the world disappears and all of the people saw God. Yeah. And then, you know, it did. And then the, the mountain where God is seen. Okay, so the question is, how did he get into that mode? Uh, is, and, and what I'm seeing here is that in some some way, God has guided him there and said, this is where I want you. I want your mouth to, to be sealed, and I want your feet to get moving. And he does it. Okay, and again, I, I, we're, not, we're not anywhere near understanding why that would be. Yeah. Could I ask a question? Could you fit into that blank space of number three? Mm -hmm. Mouth sealed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is Amaron Lagos, mm -hmm. but you don't Amaron. Okay. When Amaron's son is burned right in front of his eyes, mm -hmm. and he doesn't speak, yeah. his lips are sealed. Yes. Too. Yes. Is that an so okay down moment? This is correct. That's I'm a beautiful. Just that out it's a great question. I, is that the biblical? Yeah. yeah. Is that the biblical? Okay, again, we're not ready for it yet, but hold that, both of you, hold that, okay? Because that's certainly something we have to talk about. Yeah. I'm wondering if we aren't seeing a certain diminishment of Abraham, you know, from, um, uh, it maybe as a, a punishment or something for, you know, putting Sarah as a sister, hmm. presenting Sarah as a sister. Yeah. And then, you know, Sarah kinds of, takes over right. and she is the active one. She tells him what to do. Right. Okay, let me, let me just say, yes. there, are, there are commentators who, who want to do that because it's so impossible to understand as a test, even though it says that explicitly, there are commentators who, who pull that word and twist it to mean uh, Rashbam in particular, Tsi'er, God pained, afflicted Abraham. That Nisa somehow means to afflict because because of some wrongdoing on his part. It's possible. I, I think what's more interesting about those readings is the desperation that's felt on the part of the reader to look for something like that because otherwise the story is, is just is impossible, right? So I, I, I admire the effort. I, I don't personally I don't buy the answer, 
Um, but anyway, let's let's go on because we I can't believe it, but we really actually will run out of time. Let's 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 look at force, source number four. Um, and here things start looking very familiar. Vayashkem, vayikach. Now we've got this kind of plotting, silent movement. We recognize it. We know it well from the Akedah. This is what Abraham does. What is he thinking? It seems to be irrelevant to the story. Um, perhaps we find it relevant. The relevance is that he, if he has thoughts, if he has objections, if his brain is <coughs> screaming inside, it's all crushed. Abraham does what he knows he needs to do, which is just keep moving. Um, now comes the vision. In verses, in sources 5 and 6, this theme of vision is everywhere. And this, I think, brings about a certain contrast between the parents, the, the, the outstanding parents in each story. One is Hagar and one is Abraham. What's, what's the basic difference between the two? Well, Hagar doesn't want to see her child's death. Yeah. Cause it. Cause it. Yes. He doesn't, not only will he, will he glance at it, and not hide his eyes from it, he's going to actively enact it. Um, and so she refuses, constantly refuses to see. Her eyes have to be pried open in order to see the, the well, whereas Abraham opens his own eyes by Yisa Abraham at he raises his eyes, he has control over his eyes. Right? There's this sense that there's something that Hagar refuses to see, can't see, and I would even connect this up with number eight, with um, Be'er Sheva, uh, the place Beersheba keeps keeps recurring, and I think this is a very significant place. Beersheba seems to be the place of Shibu'ah, of oath, where the, the, the patriarchs live there, they thrive there, they all go through there, that's where they speak to God. Beersheba is a place, the end of the, of the story of the Akedah, God says, Be nishibati, right, this, this oath that God makes, Sheba is the oath. And significantly, Hagar can't find her way there. She gets lost there. She wanders. Whereas at the end of the Akedah, there he can he rests. He lives there. That's his place. There's this there's this sense in this story of vision that leads to covenantal resting. Whereas Hagar does not have that covenantal resting, and she does not have that vision. And it's interesting. Uh, one of my students once pointed out it's just a, a cute little sound play where Abraham sees the Malach, right, the one that calls off the terrible thing at the end, and the Malach for, for Hagar says, Malach. What, what's wrong? What's the matter? She's, Abraham is thinking about a Malach, and Hagar is thinking, Malach, oh, woe is me, woe is me. Right? It's personal. And I think that is essentially the difference between these two, these two modes of these people, where Hagar is responding in a way that we can, we can respect, we can, we can relate to. I can't stand it. And, and, and Abraham is almost like a robot in this thing, where he says, God wants me to do it. OK, OK, just block out everything, close my mouth, and just do it. Right? There's crying. There's everything in the first story. The second story, silence. Now, the, the, real, the real sting of this, of this comparison, I think, notice, by the way, the, uh, in, in number seven, this batechev la neged, that's twice, and I, it just dawned on me one day how interesting, what a contrast that is to the doubling of this double distancing as opposed to this double coming closer. But the irony, the irony, and that is, I think, the outstanding word here for me 
is that by the end of this story, everything is turned around. There's closeness on the part of Abraham and Yitzchak, by Yehosh Nehem Yachdav. What happens at the end of the story to the Yachdav? Who does Abraham go off with? The Ne'arim, the ones that are left with the Chamor, the, the donkey people. Right? Abraham ends up with the donkey people, and Yitzchak is where? Vanished. There is never another conversation between Abraham and Yitzchak. Their, their, their relationship essentially ends with this Akedah. Whereas Hagar and Yishmael, what happens? Every mother's dream, Batikach, Lo Imo, Isha, Me'eretz Mitzrayim. Here is the house next door. Right? She finds him a wife who's going to live here. It's, it's the, 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 so what's going on in these stories? One of them is responding covenantally, is seeing things the way that God wants things to be seen. The other one says, I don't want to see it that way. I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to, I don't want to be emotionless. And she's the one who gets the happy ending, whereas Abraham is the one who does not get the happy ending. Okay, I hope I've confused you completely, and that, that, was my, that was my hope here. Because the story, if you thought it was impossible to understand, you didn't begin to understand how impossible it was. That, that basically what this is saying is that, that th this is the life of, of a Brit. And I'm, I'm reminded, my, my husband mentioned to me when he heard Rav Amital, the, the Roshi, great Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivat Haaretzion, who was a Holocaust survivor, and he was talking about what it meant to live in the Brit, and he said that, that he, he once, he said, was it a personal little speech that he was giving to some of his Talmudim? He said, he said, you don't think I, I choke on the words, you think, I, you think I can say that without choking? Right? And, and, and I read this story, and that's that's what I hear. Choking on the words. I, I win. Well done. You see things. You've got the vision. But at what cost? And the cost seems to be everything. Okay, what Abraham is losing after this story, there is no more conversation or, or any association with Yitzhak. He, he works together to find a wife for him, but they're in completely different places. Abraham and Sarah don't meet up. What happens? Where is she? She dies, right? He's in Beersheba, she's in Hebron. That's the end of that story. Abraham doesn't speak to God after the Akita, which is really disturbing. Um, everything seems to fall apart. And, and, and we look at this and we say, where, where is our understanding, where is the most basic sense of justice in this story? It seems like a story of Yurei Elohim, you get the Yashikoach for being God-fearing, now please sacrifice not only your child, you don't have to in the end, but sacrifice your life. Sacrifice your, your human life in a way that a human being can understand. Okay, in a word, can we call this Tzadik Veralo? I mean, he is the Tzadik at the end of this story. And his life, his personal life, it's, it's fascinating because in Sodom, he's, he's, he's willing and able to, to cry out for justice for these other people, all these anonymous people who we are told are terrible people. But in his own personal life, what he understands is that that is not what God requires. God requires silent acceptance. Okay, now, what... After I started doing a lot of this, I was like really, really depressed. And I looked at the Ahare Hadavarim Ha'ele, that the story isn't over. I, this, there's this, of all the strange epilogues that the Tanakh has presented with us, I think the Akedah has the strangest of strange epilogues. 
where at the end of this story, where this incredibly dramatic tale of, of all near murder and, and, and the last, last second saved by God, in verse 20, Guess what, Abraham? Your brother, Nahor, has a bunch of grandchildren. That's the end of the story. Okay? But then, listen to this list. Et putz bechoro, ve et buz achiv, ve et kemuel, ve et aviaram, ve et keset, this is this is on page 41, half of the page, ve et keset, ve et kildash, ve et bidrash, and it goes on and on and on, and the end of it is, Rivka is mentioned, and Rashi is very perplexed by this, this is what he was doing here, it's all about Rivka, Rivka is going to marry Yitzhak, and that's fine. I want to tell you that it's not only about Rivka, it's about booze and boots and kesed also, because boots and booze and kesed are going to send us out of Bereshit and into another book. What book? Job. Ish haya be'eretz boots iyov shimo. And this, when I started to think in this direction, the book of Job, the book of Job, and if you just think about it for a minute, what does the book of Job have to do with the story of the Yachidah? You have God who orders the death of an innocent child, but not one innocent child. How many innocent children? Ten innocent children. And let's keep in mind, we didn't look at it yet, but we don't have a last-minute reprieve in the book of Job, where God says, What happens there? Ten children are slaughtered for no reason other than some kind of bizarre wager between God and Satan. Okay, what I, what I want to ask you to do now um, is to look at, just to refresh your memories for a moment, um, the first chapter in, of the book of Job, and here again, I apologize for the dot, dot, dots. Um, it's probably better if you read it inside, but I'm worried about time. I think I'll give you, I'm feeling generous, seven and a half minutes for this. Uh, if you can do it quickly, read the whole chapter, otherwise what's on the page will suffice. And ask yourselves as you're reading it, please, what, what, how does this story play on the Akedah? Read the first chapter of the book of Job. And ask yourselves, what does it have to do with the Akedah? How does it play on it? Thank you. 
Why is it so quiet in here? Lower energy, huh?
Okay. How does this story play on the story of Abraham, do you think? Two tests. Okay, they both seem to be tests of what, by whom? Good, testing the... Good, surrender. Um, we don't, well, we do have the word, what words do we have here from the, from the Abraham story? Yes. Good. Good. Okay. What else? Mishteh. Oh, yeah. Mishteh. What else? Yirei Elohim. Yes. And it's interesting that, I, well, I, again, I, because I've got sequels on the brain, I think that it's very interesting that the story of Abraham essentially ends with Abraham being called Yirei Elohim, and this story begins with Eov, with that title. Um, the question is going to be, is he going to stay that way? Uh, and there's a new word that's introduced here. What, look, at, look at all these descriptions of him. It's really almost too There's Tam. Whose word is Tam? Noah. It's Noah. Who else? Yaakov. And Abraham is also Heye Tamim. Um, he seems, I, I want to argue here that, that Eov, in a sense, is a, is a composite of all of the best of the, of the best figures. He's Tam. He's Yirei Elohim. He has Avudah Rabbah. This is for extra credit. Who had Avudah Rabbah? Yitzchak. Well done, Esther. Yes, Yitzchak has Avudah Rabbah. Lots and lots of stuff. Um, what else? Um, he's he's the word Kedem is used here, which seems to evoke. Um, yeah, but in a in a more positive way, right? Who who was smarter than the people of Kedem? Remember? Uh, Shlomo. He seems to be a composite here of all the best, and he's Yirei Elohim. Um, notice the, the numbers here. What's unusual about the numbers? They add up to 10. There's something very, very, uh, what's the word? Symmetrical? Something perfect, right? The whole, the whole numbers. There's seven, seven of these and three of those, five of those and five of those. We, we get this feeling that it's, it's not, it's almost like a fairy tale. Right, this feeling of this impossibly perfect person. Uh, he's all the avot combined into one, plus the fact that he doesn't have any of the any of the family squabbles that seem to plague the avot. Right, his kids. Can you imagine this? They get together every single day just to hang out together, and, and it's, it's 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 an amazing story. Um, the words that are borrowed from the Akedah, we, we didn't get to all of them yet, but uh, Kasdim, I, I put that in big scary letters because why? That's one of the one of the names at the end of the Akedah is Kesed. Um, in addition, we're going to meet somebody called a Buzite in chapter 32, Buz, Habuzi. Uh, Buz is yet another figure from the epilogue in the Akedah. Yurei Elohim is taken from the Akedah, and I think most significantly, Eov is the only character in all of Tanakh other than Abraham to refer to himself as Afar Va'efer, dust and ashes. This is, this, this is, I think we're supposed to notice all this. There's really, there is, again, this, 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 these arrows being drawn between these, these stories are clearly in dialogue with one another. Um, okay, so as in the story of the Akedah, he is a Yurei Elohim whose offspring is threatened by death, with death 
by God. Um, but what I want to suggest here is that this story is not only going to repeat and interpret and elucidate, it's going to challenge the story. Basically, it's going to ask the question, what would happen if the God-fearing man would unseal his lips? What if this guy gets to say all the things that Abraham never said? Would he still be considered that, that, that God-fearing servant of God? Um, or would he lose that, that position? Is it possible to suffer unjustly, to protest, and to still be considered God's chosen servant? The words Yirei Elohim are, are, are not going to follow us throughout the book, but this, this word is going to. Tam. And we're going to see that this word is actually going to be used interchangeably with the term Yirei Elohim. Uh, and everybody is going to ask, will he hold on to his, 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 his Tam um, character? Who's going to ask? Anybody know? Who, asks, who, who, who poses that? God poses it as a challenge to Satan. Um, the wife, who's unfortunately the devil's advocate in this story, uh, kind of challenges him to just get it over with and curse God. But again, this idea of holding on the tumato to, your, to, to his, his sense of tome, of perfection, of, of, of completion, of simple, simple faith. Um, that's the question I think that that looms over the book. Will he hold on to it, even if he is allowed to talk? Yes. I'm going to confess something that trying to justify the text to, to fit into my worldview. But when we look at but then we talk at the beginning when we look at text, what we try to do. Mm -hmm. When we when we look at Abraham, as you pointed out, with, with the stone, he was not top. So Tom isn't necessarily the hero. Could it be that in the Akeka story, so many times Hashem said, Bin Kai, Yitzchak, Bin Kai, Yitzchak, and how many times does Hashem have to refer to him as Bin Kai that Abraham doesn't accept it? So, so in, in the Stone episode, he spoke up right away and they had a dialogue. In the Yitzchak episode, he kept ignoring the fact that Hashem saying, This is your son. So finally, you know, I should have said, you must leave fire. So know. what does it have to do with the Yobam? So maybe Tom is not necessarily, you know, Tom isn't necessarily the attribute that we should always be. Oh, so I'm, I'm saying that only because this is the word that's going to keep on recurring in this book, and everybody's going to keep asking, will he hold on to this thing that's called Tom? That's that's all. Okay. It's not, but you're right, it's not It's not used in Bereshi. That's not the term at all. Uh, but that's the word that seems to take over here. Uh, look what happens at the end of chapter one here on your page. Um, he gets, he starts getting the bad news starts coming, and initially his reaction is, right? Basically, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Um, now it's interesting because the, I think it's not on your page here, unfortunately, but the Satan, when the Satan says to God what it is that Eov is going to do. He uses the word levarech, but what does he mean by it? Curse. Curse, right? It's used euphemistically. And here, Eov confounds Satan by using that word. He says, You're, you said I was going to be mevarech. Here, yeah, I am going to be mevarech. Yehi shem Hashem mevorach. Right? Pshuto kemashma'o, it is what it, it, it's exactly what I mean. God is blessed. V'cholzot lo chata Eov, v'lo natan tifla lelohim. 
no sin. He is blameless. Chapter 2, something begins to crack. And if you look at, at source number 7, at the bottom of the page, God opens his mouth to the Satan and starts up with him, provokes it. Here's that tam again. He's holding on to it. Satan, take that. But to see Tani Bola Balochi Nami made me he made me start up with him for no good reason. Vayan has Satan. Satan says, Yeah, yeah, I know. I, you know what's what he's done so far? Anybody could do that. Gael Atzmo, and there's a great, I, I, I just find as I experience more and more tragedy in the world, there, this is a great human truth. There is no comparison between the people who sympathize and the people who have it in their own skin. And that is what the Satan is saying. You haven't hit him on his own body. That's where the real test is. It's true, you've, you've, you've destroyed everything around him, but get him and you won't see such a, such a common person. And then suddenly there's a, there's a tiny little nuance, change in nuance. This is the bottom of the page. What happened here? Not about his heart. Okay, and, and the addition of this word, he didn't sin with his lips opens up the possibility that the text is trying to qualify it and say, well, maybe he, he, did, he did sin some other way. Maybe the, 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 the iron will is beginning, to, is beginning to show the first crack. But his mouth is still, is still playing, playing along. Acharechen, and now we're worried. Acharechen, patachi Oh no, he's opening up his mouth. Is it going to come? Vayikalel, and he cursed et yomo. He curses his own birth. That's what he curses. So Eov, his mouth is still under control. However, the main difference now between this story and the story of Abraham is that his mouth has been unleashed. He is ready to talk. And now the question is, along with this talking, is he going to lose this position of Tam, which we'll see is going to be equated with Yireh Elohim. And if he does, is God going to allow it? All right, look at source eight, please, and you'll see that there are some very, very, very harsh words that are going to come out of Eov's mouth. For instance, in chapter 19, Where are these words taken from? Hamas. Sedom. Ein mishpat. Hamas is also used at the, at the, where? At the flood. But who's who is the perpetrator now of Hamas and 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 at the absence of Mishpat? God, right? In the story of Sodom and in the story of of, 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 of the flood, the sides were clear. There are the people who are who are trampling on, on all systems of justice, and there's God who's saying, I will not tolerate it. Here is Eo, this this knight of faith at the beginning of the book. Who says, let me let me redefine things for you here, God. If there is Hamas that is being perpetrated, if there is an absence of Mishpat, you are the initiator of it. You are the perpetrator of it. I'm perfect. And it's an amazing thing. And that's what I said before about the fairy tale quality. I think this text almost artificially sets up somebody who is impossibly perfect. But who can ever claim that they're completely perfect? 
But this text sets up somebody who is actually perfect. And he goes on in other chapters. I, 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 you have to read the whole book to see. But he said, I feed the orphans and the widows. He's basically, he's never, he never backs down and says, you know what, maybe I did something wrong and I deserve this. The book is positive. Here's a man who did nothing wrong. And God is doing all of this to him. God is the, is the source of Hamas in this book. Yeah. What do you make of Satan? Um, yeah, I, I mean, God is 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 in cahoots with the Satan. The question is, what what is Satan? Right. Um, what, I mean, I think Satan is is somehow this this godly figure, this this representation of God, uh, and it's basically attributing, as the Akedah did, kach et vincha et yechidcha. It's attributing the evil to God. I think that's what's going on in this story. And that's that's what's really, really difficult. Okay? Look at the friends. What about the friends? We're going to meet them just for a moment in source number number nine. And this, for the first time, we have the equation of Yirah and, and this word Tam, where, where one of the friends says, Halo Yiratcha Kislatecha, this is by Eliphaz, uh, is not your fear of God, your confidence, the tom, uh, is not your tom, your perfection, your blamelessness, is that not your hope? Okay, In this is a parallel sentence. Kislatecha goes with dirachecha, and yiratcha goes with tom. Okay, and I find this to be very significant. Now we are talking about yirah. What's the essence of the argument that the friend here is making? And this is really very um, representative of what all the friends are going to say. Tzadik veralo? Yeah, there's no such thing as tzadik veralo. Either the ra is not ra, or the tzadik is not a tzadik. And here they're strongly suggesting the latter. You're claiming to be so perfect. Obviously you're not. Because if you were, your your tome would protect you. And if you're not protected, then you just look 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 at look inside yourself and find the answer. In other words, there are answers. The world does make sense, and God does not perpetrate um, undeserved suffering on the part of anyone. Okay. Now we get to the 38th chapter of the Book of Eov, and, and things start to really come to a head. Finally, after many, many chapters of dialogue and of the harshest possible uh, outrage on the, expressed on the part of Eov, he has said everything a human being can say. He is, I would say, the, the subversive sequel to Abraham at the Akedah. The mouth is open, and there is a torrent of words that keep on coming, and every time anyone tries to take to, to take him to task, he 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 just rejects it and says, "No, I I protest, I demand answers." And finally, in chapter 38, God speaks to Eov from from within the storm. And here, uh, I would say that God is is kind of being a little unfair here by making use of all of all the. Uh, the technical props that are at his disposal. Vayam Hashem et Iov min ha-se'ara. Se'ara, right? Speak out of the storm. Why not? 
ויאמר, מי זה מחשיך עצה במילים בלי דעת? Who is this who darkens counsel speaking without knowledge? איפה היית ביוסדי ארץ? הגד אם ידעת בינה. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Speak if you have understanding. המיימך הציבית הבוקר? ידעת השחר מקומו? Have you ever commanded the day to break and assigned the dawn its place? What's the essence of God's argument here? Say again. Who do you think you are, you little pusher? Right, I'm God and you are not. You demand answers from me? When you can bring a, bring a, make a sunrise, we'll have a conversation. But right now, we are, you're, you're nowhere, you're not in my league, so I'm not going to answer your question. And you don't deserve it. And the, the, the chapter is very long, and it goes on and on in this vein, where it's basically a God, rather, steamrolling over, over Eov and saying, I am so powerful, you can't begin to grasp anything about me. So don't ask me how, for, for, for an explanation about how I work. Yeah. Why didn't Hashem say that to the Satan? Right, because I don't think the Satan is a person. I don't think the Satan is a person. I think the Satan, I, I understand it this way, and I, of course there are other ways to understand it. I don't, I don't think of Satan as the little figure with the, the ears and the pitchfork and the tail. I, I think it's it's, it's an externalization of, of God. And that's that's what the story is. And in fact, the Midrashim and the Akedah, it's very interesting, they, they talk about Achar HaDivarim HaElah. They say, Achar HaDivarim Shel Satan. They bring in the Satan there as well and say that the Satan is, is provoking God to, sh- to prove that Abraham is, is really faithful. So I, I think it's just a, it's kind of literary device to get at what, how God functions. And, and the literary device is a very, very disturbing one. I, I think. Let's look at Eov's reaction to this in, in, uh, in source number 11. If God has driven the steamroller, he is appropriately flattened. Vayan Eov et Hashem vayomar. And I, again, the dreaded dot, dot, dot. But the bottom line is, Alken emas vinichamti al afar vaefe. To source number 11. Anybody want to take a stab at this? Alken emas vinichamti. Actually, it's easy to take a stab at it because I think I gave you the translation. Yeah. Okay. Therefore, I recant and repent. Okay. Here is our new word of interest. Yes. Isn't this God language, especially from the um, hmm. uh, pre the pre flood? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So he's using the nachama is yeah. not just is not just comfort. Yes. Nachama is also regret. Yes. And so yes. And so Great. He's, he's almost. I mean, I'm, I've never seen it until two minutes ago in your class. But um, it's almost as if Job is saying, okay. If you're telling me that I really, if I can't bring a sunrise, I can't be godlike and, and, and speak and, and uh, 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 challenge God, mm-hmm. well then, I'm going to hoist with your own guitar. I'm going to use your god language huh. and step back. Okay, good, good, yeah. 
But who, I mean, who wins in that case? He's, he's surrendering. He's surrendering. He can't go anywhere else. He can't. He's that stuck. That is against the wall. 100%. There is nothing else. 100%. So from the Nachama, yeah. God will create nothingness in the flood. Yes. And in here, the Nachama, God has already pushed Job to nothingness. Okay. So Job has nowhere else to go. Okay, great. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. Nichamti here, and asvinichamti is translated as I recant and relent. Um, you're saying more nechama is regret, regret, and I think that's very part of, part of it. Yes, recanting and relenting. I'm sorry, I was wrong, basically. God wins. You win. I have nothing to say. That's what God was saying. That's what flood too. Yes. Yes. That's it. Okay. Um, and he says basically. Um, if, if this was a contest between God and Eov, uh, it seems that Eov has lost. Um, however, on one level, he 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 does survive. In what sense? Right? What was the, what was the challenge? What was the wager to begin with? What was he supposed to do? To blaspheme, and he does not blaspheme. Satan said he would he would curse God. He never does that. Um, but it seems that he has perhaps incorrectly, inappropriately attacked God, because God says, I'm great, your understanding is limited, you are you are a mere mortal, you can never understand me, and he says, I, 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 I give up. Um, again, this afar va'efer, did you notice that? Afar va'efer, where is this taken from? Abraham where? In Sidon. Again, there's this humanity at this moment where he's saying, afar va'efer, I am a... All told, I am I'm nothing but human, and you are so much greater than I am, there's nothing left for me to say. Okay. Now, if this were the end of the book, this would be a very perplexing conversation that we've just had for the past hour and a half. It isn't the end of the book. There's another ending of the book. This is almost a postmodern, double-ended book. And if you look now... Um, in, at the top of page five, in your no, sorry, the bottom of page four. Vayihi achar diber Hashem et hadivarim haela. You with me? After no, I maybe it's different on your sources. In source eleven, source eleven, where it says Job forty-two, and first there's this the little line where it says v'nichamti al achar va'efer. Just under that. Vayihi achar diber Hashem et hadivarim ha'ila el Iyov, vayomer Hashem el Elifaz ha'temani, chara api v'cha uvishnei re'echa. He turns to the friends of Iyov and he says, I'm really angry at you. Ki lo dibatem elai nechona ke'avdi Iyov. You have not spoken correctly, as has my servant Iyov. Ve'ata, ke'chulachem shiva parim v'shiva elim, I want you to take a bunch of animals, and go to my servant Eov, he will pray for you. Okay? And again, you have to apologize to him because you have not spoken correctly, as has my servant Eov. He is consistently referred to as my servant, and he is the person who has spoken correctly. Then, his brothers and sisters, we meet for the first time, they all come. Oh, 
What does it mean now? They comforted him. Al All the evil, it's an interesting choice of words, that God had brought upon him. God blessed him now, the end of his days, more than the beginning. And now catch these numbers. How many now? If he had 10 before, now he's got 20. Um, everything's doubled. 10 children, right? It's a shame that the old ones died, but here you get better ones, right? And Eov dies. We know these words from somewhere. These are more Abraham words. That's how Abraham dies as well. Okay. What in the world has happened here? This is ending number two. And what does ending number two say? Hey, God, what? Yeah, basically God is saying, you know, it's very nice that you surrendered, but I don't entirely accept your, your surrender. And instead, he's saying, you, Eov, deserve an apology by all those people who tried to claim that your, that your words were incorrect. You're right. You were right for challenging me. And, and I think what's fascinating here is this pivoting word, nachem, that, that contains in it both meanings. Right? That on the one hand, and I think this is the grand message, this dual message of the Book of Eov, on the one hand, human beings have to recant and relent when they challenge God. They are, as you say, backed up, in, up, up against a wall. There's nothing to say. God is all-powerful, all-mysterious. God can do terrible things that seem completely undeserved to a person. No explanation, no apology, and all you get to do is suck it up and be quiet. That's ending number one. Ending number two is that human beings deserve comfort for these injustices. They deserve an apology for these injustices. The person in this book who cries foul and says it is wrong, it's unjust, is considered closer to God than the people who offer the pat answers. It's an unbelievable book here. Right? God has the right, basically, God has the right to bring, to rain down ra'ah, evil on people. And people have the right to call it ra'ah and to protest it. Right? So this subversive sequel, again, if you will, it has, has God and human beings reversing themselves. Where human beings break their silence in the face of injustice, injustice, God allows and even encourages human protest. And there's a kind of an apology for it, where the apology is almost comical. And that's why I keep saying it's, it's got this fairy tale quality to it. Right, where everything is restored in the end. You know, no, sorry, no foul, no harm done. Let me let me give you back everything that you lost. Does yeah. No, no, no. That is 100% right. God never says, I, I, I need, I need my I, right? I, I'm sorry. God doesn't apologize. This is expected from man. Yes, man, you don't have the right to, to, to. Uh, attack him, to criticize him. God says, I'm still not going to tell you why I did these things. But what I am going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to validate your, your distress your, and, and, and your, your feeling of being in, uh, unjustly treated. I understand that you feel that way and, and you're right for feeling that way, but 
that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop doing those things or that I'm going to tell you why I do those things. So there is still an element of that, I'm God and you're not, but it's it's very different than the first one. It seems to just just kind of, you know, use power to silence him and to say there's nothing there's nothing for a human being to do. Yeah. But the understanding is that these are perceived injustices and that yes. we are that has its reasons in the larger scheme of things. I don't oh, know. I've explained it to you but you wouldn't understand it. I, I don't know I if that I don't I okay. I, I don't want to get into I don't know if the book is saying that. I, I don't actually see that in the book. I, what I see in the book is that God is doing these things that people are absolutely cannot understand. God doesn't say, I do these things because they make sense. God says, I do these things because I'm God. So That's it's very radical. It's very radical, yes. That's gigantically radical. I believe you're right. I, 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 I am constantly awestruck when I look at this book and the fact that it is in in our canon and there by the way it's not the only book that you you know I my jaw drops open like Kohela I mean where did that come from Shir Hashirin this erotic love poetry and we've got stuff in this in this book yeah and it and it, and it understands the human condition you're hearing you're hearing divine power that does not have to explain itself to human beings. Doesn't have to explain, but doesn't. But but in there, at no place is there a, a, a sentence or a hint that 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 there is a logic in it, um, or that you're going to know what that logic is. Okay, that's your 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 right to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering about this concept of the you know, the deuteronomistic idea mm -hmm. in the Torah that goes over and over and over again is truth and consequence. Mm -hmm. Here's the truth, here are the consequences. That's just it. This book is saying there's no truth and consequences. Then all four little ways to treat something. Yeah. So we're going to forget that. But I'm wondering how to fit the Abraham story into that truth and consequences. I mean, I used to see it mm -hmm. as, well, it's part of that truth and consequences. Right. You know, he's a good man, so his son isn't killed. But Oh, that it's actually a good ending. That yeah, but the way you ended the story, the story in your interpretation, he's a good man, and this is very similar to Job. The consequences weren't good. Right. He separates from his son, yes. his wife dies. Yes. So even in that place, it's really interesting, before the whole Deuteronomistic history, there's this question about whether that's really the right thing. Yes. Really yes. Quite interesting. yes, and I want to. I'm not finished yet, but I want to get back to the Akedah and 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 really get back to that point precisely, which is that it is it isn't a happy ending yet. It takes not just a place in our canon, but a very central place in it. And I think we have to grapple with that that we don't only and together with the fact that the Book of Eo doesn't only have this ending; it has two endings. So that that other piece is in there too. And what what do we do with that? And I, I want to get back to that, but first, I, I yeah, go ahead. I, I wonder if you should see this as a corrective, the time first Abraham reacted when um, they want to get rid of Ishmael, mm -hmm. and God says, no, no, you're not entitled to those feelings. You don't get to have those feelings. And then he has no reaction, or there's no reaction recorded. And yeah. this scene, can you see this, that you're allowed to react? You're not going to get an explanation yes. you're allowed to have a normal reaction. I, I believe so. I think that's what this book is doing. Yeah, I do. Yes. Yeah. I, I wonder if this is an answer to Abraham, especially if they call Aristotle, and in reading that story, we 
And here? Not necessarily. Maybe not. Yeah. 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 Okay. Who said that we used the word radical? You did. Yeah. Yes. Very nice. Very nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. Right. Okay. No. Okay. Sorry. No foul. Let's. You know. Here. Here. Take it back. Not quite the same thing. Yeah. Right. When you say we, who do you who do you who are you speaking for? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we don't see and and the okay. 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 Here, because of his phone and now. Okay. I I I okay. I know you want me to go there, but I'm not. There is no guarantee. Okay. Okay. There is no guarantee that only very good things will come here. No, there are not. Okay. Uh, but it works out okay at the end. Yes. So is that is that a way of, of saying actually it is for the good? I need to love it. Yeah. At the end, Yield says he ascends. So, based on that, I would say that the opposite. He says, saying I sin. I should not have done that. He says, Nihamti. Right. But he says, I repent. We can't. He doesn't say I sin. He says I, 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 I submit. I think he's saying, you know, he's either repenting what he said, meaning that I was wrong in trying to question you. Mm -hmm. I think it's the opposite. So you don't see any of this of this second well, part. Well, I, I can see. What else I can say is that if you got seen them, you know, I can take your anger. Mm -hmm. At the end, I can't handle really your anger. It's a human, a human thing to get angry. At mm -hmm. the end, you can submit to my will. And why does he say to the friends, look, you didn't speak as correctly well, as they, you? They, just got, they serve as a function. They're not, they're not there to give the answers. They, they, mm -hmm. they know the five about what's going on as you go. Mm -hmm. They probably know less. Okay. So, yeah, so look, I, 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 I don't know if I gave my, uh, my standing caveat. You, you are free to reject every single word I say. <laughs> yes. Who's, somebody in the back? I thought there was somebody there. No, no. Okay, I want to move toward conclusion. I'll take two more and then, yeah. What I was going to say is that it's not a happy ending no matter what, God forbid, in comparison to the Holocaust. People that have been married and having families, but they still yes. carry the pain of what they had. Yes. So, yes. I mean, there's no good ending for anybody. No, that's correct. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. I have a question. Out of ignorance, which I don't know this, but right in the beginning, it does mention about his children getting together mm -hmm. on feast days, and he thinks obviously that they may have sinned. Blasphemed. Made yes. me think of incest. I don't know why I went there, but mm -hmm. I did. Um, you know, and he offers, uh, he makes an offering right. just in case. And right, it's very, very is that odd. That's a that's that was a, it's yeah. very strange. Yeah. Very strange. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that is specifically the thing that that the Satan is going to accuse him of, which is really interesting. So is this Satan perhaps an externalization of Eov? Does he think that maybe he has those tendencies? I I I, I, I think it's a great question. It's a little bit out of the scope of what we're doing right now, but I I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Let let let, let me just. I, let me just finish, and then if there are questions, uh, feel free. 
I wanted I want to play on this word Tom one more time. Um, we're at the end of the book, in Job's final speech, in, in source number twelve. Right, I think that this is possibly uh, a double entendre, where after he finally finishes all these words, which are the opposite of Abraham and his and his absence of words, the text tells us tamu divreiyog. Um, and on the surface, what that means is they're, they're finished, they're completed, he has, he has spent, he's said everything that a person could possibly say. But there's a hint, I think, of something else, that his words retain that tmimut, that level of tongue, that was the question that, that we started with, right? Despite all of these protests against injustice, that the questioner is still, is still considered tongue, in God's eyes, is considered still perfect, and, and still God's event. Um, we're not going to get an explanation. We're not going to get a, any kind of a bargain on human suffering. But there will be this validation of the injustice. Um, and so the book of Job, I think, demonstrates that the human being who cries out for a logical, moral world, like the kind of thing that we saw in Sodom, might not get the accolade of Yuat Elohim, but, but he or she can remain Tom, which is innocent and perfect before God. Now, I want to I just move toward conclusion with this. I, I, in previous years when I, I, I taught this, um, this comparison, I would, I would end at this point. And this is going to get back to what you were saying, Jason. Um, with Eov as the subversive sequel to the Akedah, that that's the story that's impossible. And this story is closer to something that we can understand, of human logic, of human justice, of human suffering, of, of acknowledgment of it at the very, very least, even if there's not an explanation. But it's a kind of a triumph of, of our own feelings and our own logic and our own morality and an overturning of sorts of this inscrutable demand to wordlessly submit to God's injustice. Uh, but once when I was talking about this uh, some time ago, I saw the look on the face of a man sitting out there. Um, and he, he had lost his wife. She had died that year. And he was very clearly uncomfortable with my attempt to subvert the Akedah. Um, and since then, I, I have to say, I've lived a little bit more of life myself, uh, and I want to add a but yet to this. It's not just an overturning. That really, the second ending, um, God's apology, fits very nicely with our modern sensibility. Right? We're all, we were, we were wonderful philosophers. Um, we demand morality of ourselves. We demand morality of God. We want him to, to fit nicely. Um, we need our world to make sense. Uh, and when God seems to break the rules, we get agitated, we can get angry, How could and, and we try to fit these things into certain moral equations. Um, how could God be both all-powerful and all-good? And people have written whole books on this, right? How could, basically, how can God let all these terrible things happen? Um, and sometimes we strain our minds to come up with new philosophical constructs to make sense of it again. Um, and that, I think, we question, we protest, we get to ending number two in the book of Eov, and we say, okay, we're good. But what I want to just add here is let's not forget ending number one, and let's not forget the Akedah. Um, this ending number one doesn't subvert the Akedah, it actually reinforces it. Because here, too, we have a Yurei Elohim who suspends his own morality and his own logic and submits to God. As you said, his back goes up against the wall, and he says, my back is up against the wall, I've got nothing to say. It's, it's accepting and submitting. Um, and in, uh, in the past year, I read this really wonderful book by James Kugel called In the Valley of the Shadow. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this. If you haven't seen it, it's very, very worth reading. 
And he talks about this concept called starkness, um, which is basically living with this primal sense of this mysterious, all-powerful God, this unknowable force that is in control, and, and this incredible smallness of the human being in the face of that. And we have this kind of artificial sense that we can stand up in the face of that because we're surrounded by all kinds of protections. We have our gadgets, our science, our medicine, our philosophies, everything that we can turn to to say, you know, we're in control here. And he calls all of that, all those little crutches that we have, he calls that the background music. That we all have this music that, that kind of keeps us marching in the world. Right? We hear it and we, we march to it and we feel that all is good and all, all makes sense and all is going to, the music is going to keep going and we're going to keep going with it and everything's going to be fine. Um, and that's going to stay un uninterrupted and unchanged. But he says that sometimes there's an unforeseen event. It can be a traumatic event, it could be a tragedy, it could be a disease, and suddenly the music, the music suddenly stops. And, and the person, this tiny defenseless human being, is standing before this infinite, all-powerful, mysterious God. Um, and I, I, th I think about this a lot, um, and specifically, especially at the time of, of um, Rosh Hashanah, where we read the Akedah, uh, we read this very, very difficult story. And I, and I think that there's something ingenious about reading the story of the Akedah, because the Akedah is the story that, that, that gives voice to this to the background music stopping and to people standing alone without, without a philosophical argument, without any defenses before God. And that, that's what we do all day, is basically plead. Um, we are so small and you are so great and we will never understand you. Um, so I, but I, I, I just want to leave you with this thought that perhaps once a year, without, without um, the intermediary of, God forbid, of a tragedy or a disease, that we, we purposely, we intentionally turn the music off. Right? And, we, and we, we, we take ourselves out of that place where we feel kind of artificially surrounded by all of these things. Um, even our very sophisticated brains, we give, we give the brain a, bit, a, a, a short rest. And we face God squarely to, and just try to feel that overwhelming presence. Um, and I think that perhaps once we're stripped of that music and, and the bravado, that we can actually gradually begin to move our limbs our minds and our hearts slowly with humility, with afava efer, smallness, with starkness, to muster all of the yirah, the timimut of these characters that we've seen, um, and to begin to really pray. Um, that's my hope, that's my wish. I wish you Shana Tova. And we have four minutes if anybody has questions. Thank you. Yes. Brings to mind the end of the Sarah Hamadi Gemara, where the Torah says, "Yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right." And I wanted to get back to you exactly that there are moments where that is all that's required, and there's and there's nothing to say. Nothing to say. And I think it it, it 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 respects this model respects that that, that experience that that you know certainly throughout history. And, and you know, you, you, you take a room of, of, of people and you find the kind of suffering, that you know, unspoken suffering that people might be going through, where they're going through it silently and with acceptance because that they, because they have no choice, right? So 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 we live with these things, and I think these that, that, the, that these, this dual model really really does uh, honor both of those things. Yeah, yeah I just think now we've got 
um, back to that. Our consultant, like you said, he doesn't answer, he doesn't say anything. But you know, so we understand, but for us, we have to approach the EO. The EO does challenge your question, and then the question just has the answer you know, so here we really say, even though Abraham, we may ask, how come he didn't say anything? Nothing. After that, he doesn't say anything. But to be young, you don't have a challenge to answer your answers. You are not there, you have to accept it. And that's when we kind of accept it too. Because with that, that is very hard to accept. This is hard to accept, but you see, don't you? I'm thinking that this Abraham started out from the human emotion of protesting God's, um, uh, it was external to Abraham, it wasn't personal. Mm -hmm. It was God's justice in Sodom for, for not for Lot, because Lot's never mentioned, but it's just for the justice of don't destroy the evil with the good. Maybe because he moves towards some sort of, I'm just using the word very, very bluntly, sainthood, mm -hmm. being able to take their gift. Maybe we need the Job story mm -hmm. to bring it back to us mm -hmm. because it has both endings. Mm -hmm. You don't only have to be in Abraham mm -hmm. to be silent. Mm -hmm. It's going to be super tough. We don't know Abraham's suffering. That mm -hmm. whole little silent box of yours, mm -hmm. that's, that's such an eloquent silent box. Yeah. We don't know if it's because he's yeah. overwhelmed with this or whatever yeah. we can project. Yeah. But in Job, there's 38 chapters of it. So it makes it, so I think I see it as a as amazing person because we're crying out for filling in that blank box. So so we cannot pay it to it. So we have Job as the human, and here it all is. Building on that, they, they, and then I agree that that box is like that screaming. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I, I've never quite saw the text like this. Maybe there's a connection in that silent box and the end of the dynasty that, although, you know, Abraham's generation continues, Hashem expects us to scream out. And maybe that's what I, I never heard of this darn the Yom 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 Yom